2: Fresh new stuff. And Jane Nestle will bring you there. So let's talk about it with light and darling
0: air. Good morning, everyone. This is Tran Lewis. It's beautiful outside. Yay, it's 50 degrees, finally. And this is MJ Network, MJ after my sister, Marcia Joyce. And this is going to be so much fun. We have Jim Nesmith, Philip Margolin, Alan Topol, and I'm not sure about Lancelot Russo. And we send our get well wishes to Dennis Palumbo. And this is going to be a fun panel show. The focus of this panel is to discuss how the authors employ their career, or anything else they want, in their novels. So good morning, and how is everyone? I hope it's nice and sunny and cool where you are.
3: It's not cool down in Alabama, but it's nice and sunny. It's cool here, yeah. yeah,
0: thank God. Portland yeah, thank Oregon. God it's cool here. It's yeah, well, yeah, Washington, orders. Oregon's
4: going
1: between... Uh, Sun and Wait,
0: well, rain and sun and rain. <laughs> yeah, well, Washington's
1: a swamp. What can I tell you? <laughs> what could I
0: say? All I know is that my air conditioner broke the compressor, so thank God it's cold outside. So, Alan, I'll pick on you first.
1: Okay. Go ahead.
0: What type of law do you practice? There's people listening to, if they are. And how do you incorporate that in your Washington lawyer novels? And I hope there's one coming out soon, Hand hand. And who are the main characters, and which one is like you? All that in one breath.
1: Okay, well, I, I am, I'm with a large Washington international law firm, um, and I oh, nice. do international public policy work representing clients um, around the world who have problems with their governments or with the U.S. government. So for me it's wonderful because I write novels that are international thrillers or international intrigue. And it's great because I get to meet people that I can, that I can adapt and put in the novel. I, I get situations that I can adapt and I can put in the novel. I mean, my last novel, um, The French Revenge, for example, um, incorporates um, ideas. The one that I'm working on now um, involving Chinese spying in the U.S., I've been heavily involved in problems involving China So, hey, it's a great combination and a great fit. I like doing the law work. It works very well with the novels. And as far as who I'd be like, as you well know, for a number of novels, six, I had this hero, Craig Page. And Fran, you're the one who said, hey, I wanted to be like Craig Page. He was my dream. I want to be some (laughs) Washington. I wanted to be Craig Page out in the field, armed with a gun. (laughs) And and." And so, in a sense, I think I've lived vicariously. I've gotten out of my legal framework in writing my novels, but that's that's kind of what I've done, Fran, uh, anyhow. I don't know that's if that cool. answers your, your long question. I hope
0: it does. Something's got to answer my long question. Phil, I'm going to give you the question I was going to ask Dennis. So I just changed the wording, people. This I'm getting good at this. Um how do you bring your expertise in law and criminal defense, and I wish you did malpractice, into your novels through your character?
4: Oh, well, you know, since I write uh, just background for for listeners who don't know, I was a criminal defense lawyer for 25 yeah. years. I did 30 homicide cases, including 12 death penalty cases, got to argue mm. with the U.S. Supreme Court and a uh, uh, Oregon Supreme Court, and I did pretty much every kind of criminal case you can do uh, in both federal and state courts. So uh, it's a real good cheat for me because uh, when I uh, write, uh, all of my books have a lawyer and a murder. So when I'm mm-hmm. writing um, <clears throat> scenes involving a death penalty uh, murder case like um, a matter of life and death which is the latest my latest book uh, I've done those cases and I can make the scenes more realistic so it's 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 uh, it's just very easy for me to uh, write dialogue uh, how does a lawyer uh, talk to a client in a in a jail uh, in a, a nine, in a contact uh, room at the jail, uh, <clears throat> who's accused of murder. Well, I've done that, you know, dozens of, of times. So uh, the best part about you know having practiced for 25 years is that I can make the scenes very realistic. I know how the judges talk. I know how the lawyers mm-hmm. talk when they're in chambers. Um, so it's it it just Means I don't have to do a lot of research. I can just think back to some of my cases and, and just mm. transpose uh, the scenes, you know, what I actually did in real life into a scene.
0: That's interesting. And I remember how you. I remember how you told me. I'm going to talk about at the end of the show how you figure out what you want to write about. I do remember that too. That that I told that to somebody else. That's amazing. So Jim. As a journalist, how do you handle Ed Birch in your novels with PTSD? And I'm going to give you Dennis' question. What decisions does he have to make that are vital in the story? Well, I'm a little uh, leery, and I've never called
3: Ed um uh, uh, mm-hmm. kind of emotional problems uh, PTSD, because I think that word gets bandied about too much you know, these days. So. I just uh us, you know, use something old fashioned like haunted. And uh um, you know, he's self medicating and uh, it's uh, he's you know, he's trying to find a way to you know, to deal with uh, mm-hmm. those problems yet still remain a functional detective. He finds that while he's working he's fine. It's when he's got downtime that the problems emerge, so um, he tries to stay as busy as he can um so that's you know th- that 's kind of how i how I deal with that and uh um it's uh you know he he's popping pills and uh chasing it with uh, good whiskey and uh, um mm-hmm. soldiering on so of course, we all know that 's only perhaps a temporary fix, but um it gets him through the book so which is you know where I wanted to where I wanted to get them. Um, I want to go back to something that uh, you know, one of the other guys were saying, you know, as, as I was listening, I mean, I I, I think uh, what um, um, the notion of being able to draw on your direct experience, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. and you know, to me, nothing nothing beats walking the ground to the place you're writing about, or having experience um, with, uh, <clears throat> you know, with the subject matter you're writing about, and, and how people in that world talk, I mean, that's authenticity that you can't really fake or, um, um, you know, buy. I mean, you can uh, you can come close to it with extensive research, you know, and by that I mean more than reading. You can talk to people, uh, but nothing beats actually being in the arena and uh, experiencing that stuff and, being a player in that uh, arena, so you you know you're bringing almost uh, I doubt you guys have to think about it very much to uh, you know bring in the <clears throat> air of authentic dialogue and uh, you know scene setting. So that that really mm-hmm. struck struck a chord with me as you guys were talking.
0: That's interesting. See, I'm learning a lot. I take notes while you're speaking. I never thought about writing anything about 36 years of teaching in a public school system. Some of the people might not like what I write. What can I tell you? So uh, I stay away from what I I know. I do something different. So how do you take readers, Alan, inside the intricate underpinning of Washington's elites, and how do you question their morals and ethics? Because I often question a lot of that. How do you deal with that?
1: That's that's, that's interesting. The way I deal with that is because Mm -hmm. I've known... A lot of people – I've been a um, lawyer in a top Washington law firm for uh, not mm. a very long time, and I've gotten to know a lot of people who are in very high positions in government, and, and some of them have confided in me. And I've gotten to see mm. f- and the kind of conflict um, that they deal with. And, I mean, this is – and I wrote a book about it, too, one of my particularly dark ambition. But, you know, one of the things <laughs> – wonder, just sort of speculating myself and thinking about it as I write, there's an awful lot of people who um, do, we won't call them evil people, Who people who do things um, that are less than praiseworthy in Washington. And there are a lot of scoundrels, let's put it this way. And the question mm-hmm. I have myself often as I'm writing novels is, are there more people who are of this character, who are attracted to Washington, or do people, when they come to Washington, end up being changed and converted by the toxic atmosphere uh, in the city? And I've really kind of wondered about it as to what the explanation is for so many scoundrels, because you do see mm. people getting swept up in things, but a lot of people who are good Innocent people came to town, and they end up getting changed by the experience and i I'm always kind of thinking about that question and and I'd really be interested mm-hmm. in what some of your other panelists think about um uh, that issue because it mm-hmm. intrigues me a lot
2: mm-hmm. yeah,
3: well, you're talking about uh nature nurture almost um right inherently evil versus uh just uh you know Gradually and you know dipped into the corrosive material of DC. I used to be based up there, so I, I know a little bit about it. And uh, I, I think the answer is for most of those folks, it's a combination. You know, you get a you know, maybe you get seduced by the money, you get seduced by the power, and uh, pretty soon whatever, what, whatever ethics you brought in your suitcase to come to DC are you know pretty much swept away. Um, I, I, that's my guess, but uh, I think he had more intimate contact with the power brokers He may have been more revealing than a journalist would.
0: Well, I think Lance, that's... Lance, is that you?
3: Yeah,
1: that's me. Sorry about on. that.
0: Hi, that's okay. Phil, so what were you going to say?
1: No, I was going to say that's a great... I like that comment. It's Alan Topol again. But that's a good way to put it and express it. And, and the other overriding factor is ambition. I mean, we see yeah. people who are motivated and driven by incredible ambition and they end up in Washington and I think that ambition is what sort of drives their behavior as well. I mean, you know, you sort of get addicted to it and you can't keep going. And you can't keep quit. You want to keep going, raising yourself up to the next level and the next position. But it's that and that's why I wrote yeah. a book. A dark ambition of Washington. Yep.
2: Novel. That's,
3: you know, that's what I meant by power. I mean, you get, you know, you see it, you want it, and
0: that becomes your, you know, your holy grail. Right. That's interesting. Lance, I've got a question for you. I got sure. My here? <laughs> I'm glad you got here because my husband has my cell phone. He refuses to let me get it back. He's he's got you know he's checking my messages to make sure I don't get in trouble. What can I say? Come <laughs> <Well, I'm> on, kidding. <laughs> um, you know, no, he does really. So, how do you take readers inside the minds of law enforcement and share your knowledge with agencies and work together? And how did you create one of my favorite characters, Johnny Tillman? When are you coming out with a new one?
5: Mm-hmm. Ah, sure, so uh, a couple of different things. Uh, so let me tell you the the good news on the new one. Uh, I have decided, in a throwback to the 1950s and 1960s, to do a serial novel. I just finished oh, nice. it. It is a serial novel about uh, Johnny Till, and he gets into a shooting, an officer-involved shooting in a very hostile jurisdiction with a lot of politics involved, something I know a little bit about after representing about 115 officers involved in shootings. So uh, that should be out very shortly, and people should watch LanceLaRussoBooks.com dot com or my uh, Facebook um, pages, and they will see more information. But it's going to be out in, in it'll be in seven episodes, and they'll probably be about two or three weeks apart. So more Johnny Till is on the way. Uh, Johnny Till was created based on the fact that uh, you know there are tremendous individuals working in law enforcement every day, doing an incredible job, Mm -hmm. and and these days their job is even harder. So I wanted to write a book that um, didn't have the alcoholic, uh, you know, divorced seven times homicide detective who hates everybody, hates the chief, beats people up. That's Hollywood. If you want to know what real cops are like, how real cops solve crimes, Um, then this is the book for you and this is the series for you. The first book, Hunting of Men, introduced us to Johnny Till, a very young homicide detective who draws a cold case as part of their uh, ritual in the police department. And the cold case he draws is the murder of a police officer from that jurisdiction. And having worked in a law enforcement agency for a long time and having still be associated with law enforcement and having had officers that were murdered uh, that I worked with, uh, it's an amazing thing to imagine that you couldn't solve that crime. So he winds up uh, going forward and challenging himself, solving the crime, and also unco- uncovering a uh, sex trafficking ring, which is something I wanted to bring attention to. It's a scourge on our society. So I think people will really, really enjoy the books.
1: Hey, I got a law I enforcement it. question. Hey, Fran, can I interrupt and ask your speaker a law enforcement question? Sort of. Oh, um, of course. Of the- I don't care. <laughs> yeah, Utilizing your expertise on the law enforcement thing is, it seems to me, just, you know, kind of following events in newspapers, an awful lot of, of the homicides of cases involving police shooting uh, people end up with the person being dead, being, being dying, and it becomes a homicide. And then there's a whole issue, should the police was shot? You know, was he threatened? This and that. Mm. Are the instructions kind of to shoot, not to kill, to hit somebody in the shoulder, in the arm? Why does it seem as if so many of these cases end up in homicides as as opposed to just the perpetrator, the wounded? I'm just saying maybe they don't. Maybe I'm just wrong. I'm getting a a mis-skewed view from the newspaper, but I'd Mm. love to
5: hear your expertise on this question. Sure. First and foremost, you are getting skewed uh, news okay without a doubt the number of people that are shot and killed by law enforcement has been over exaggerated um, Mm -hmm. and the the myth that they are hunting down and killing people of color has been disproved so many times it's amazing now let's go back to shooting um, and why officers aim center of mass on whatever targets available that could be the chest that could be the back it could be an arm it could be a leg it could Mm. be the side of a head The bottom line is when you use a firearm, it is always deadly force, whether you are shooting at someone in the leg or the arm or the chest. And people say, well, it has less of a propensity to kill if you shoot somebody in the thigh. Well, that's just nonsense. If a person gets shot in the leg, they may bleed out before an ambulance gets there. That's why my clients and Mm -hmm. officers all over the country have used their own trauma kits to put tourniquets on people that were trying to kill them to save their lives. Now, so far mm. as the use of deadly force, there are certain things that have to be in place before an officer can use deadly force. And it is those circumstances, <laughs> and force is always driven by the suspect. The amount of force that's used is always driven by the suspect. So when you have an officer that's justified in using deadly force, where they shoot Mm -hmm. them is not the issue. So far as ending up in homicides, when you shoot people, they have a high propensity to die. That's why the threshold in the United States under the Fourth Mm -hmm. Amendment and under the law is that the use of deadly force will be reserved for situations when an officer's life or the life of a third party is either threatened or serious bodily injury is expected.
0: So, could I, no, I have a question about two, that. Uh, How would Fran, you defend somebody put, like that?
4: Oh. Fran, can I put my two cents in? Sure.
0: Yes, you can. Be my guest. Yes, well, <laughs> I was, I,
4: you know, I, I uh, was a, a
0: criminal defense
4: attorney for years, but I was a very mm. pro-prosecution criminal defense lawyer. And even though I was very successful, um, it it was pretty apparent to me that about 90% of the time when the police arrest someone, they get the person who actually did a bad thing. Uh, On TV, they're always arresting innocent people or they're, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, planting evidence and stuff. But in real life, uh, and I have had a couple of cases over the years where the police did plant evidence or to do something um, that was illegal, but that's rare. Most of the time, the police um, to get the right person. I also was a special agent for the district attorney's office, and I got a chance to ride along with police in, in uh, looking for witnesses and stuff. So what the public doesn't realize is a police officer out in the field is making a split-second decision usually under very tense situations. And uh, they're trying to do the best they can without a lot of time to think. And uh, when you get into court, everything slows down. Everything's in slow motion in the courtroom. So it will look sometimes like a policeman's done something that they shouldn't have, But that's only because you're not in the real-life situation. So I have a lot of tolerance for, um, you know, when I see all this this criticism about policemen shooting someone, uh, There's, you know, sometimes it's pretty obvious they shouldn't have done what they did. But a lot of times also the the people that are – being critical of the police
2: mm. don't
4: realize what it's like to be in a, the type of situation that police officers encounter every day where they don't deal they deal with people at their worst where people are angry or they've been using alcohol. Uh, so you're dealing with people that aren't calm and rational in a lot of instances. And you have to make this decision extremely fast. So sometimes, you know, your decision, what you do, you shouldn't have done it, but that's only in hindsight.
5: Well, and they, the United States Supreme Court addressed that specifically, and it's interesting. They say that officers should not be judged with 2020 20 hindsight from the safety of yeah. the judges' chambers. Now, this is a Supreme Court justice saying this. If you've ever been to the mm. Supreme Court, I was sworn in a few years ago. It's amazing. There are several levels of security before you can even get to a door that leads to a judge's chamber. So they knew what they were talking about. But, you know, the other thing when you talk about the mistakes are exceedingly rare, the use of deadly force is exceedingly rare in law enforcement. Mm -hmm. It really is. Law enforcement officers arrest 12 to 13 million people a year, and they shoot and kill less than 1,000 every year.
0: So I have a question about that, too. I'm taking notes here. So you... This, this is true, but you know what? I watch the media, and I think they exaggerate a lot. So how do you, how do you tell the difference between a reporter that's telling, you know, shoot to kill or it was an accident or whatever? How do you report something like that? How do you know whether they're telling the truth or they are trying to make it worse for the police department? That bothers well, in, me.
5: in the book that I wrote, um, Blue News, we talk about law enforcement telling their own story. So let's go back to the previous question about, not shooting yeah. center of mass or supposedly shooting in a way that will lessen the chances of a of a mm-hmm. death. I, I've shot competition for years for six years I was one of the top 20 police shooters in the state of Georgia. When you shoot center of mass at someone, when you shoot someone in the chest, the chances Ooh. of that target moving out of your view, the chances of that target moving away from the bullet that you are sending, which you are responsible for, is much lower than trying to shoot an arm. So Mm. let's say you're shooting at an arm. The arm moves, which people's arms move, and you hit a bystander. Mm. You are now responsible legally and financially in a civil and criminal court for that injury to that bystander. So the very nature of saying shoot in the arm and shoot in the leg will actually put the public in more danger.
0: That's scary. So let me change the venue on these questions. Here we go, um, Alan. When you yeah. tell your story, and this is a question for everybody that can everybody can answer. Who tells your story, and what are, what lessons in this? What lessons does Craig Page learn every time he does something? I love Craig Page. I'm sorry. I like Kelly Cameron, but I love Craig Page. So who tells your story? Um, do you just use first person, or do you use third person? Or do you just use dialogue to tell your story? Because that's a big challenge, too.
1: Uh, well, I like to find, I was sort of, I ended up learning from and being educated on this point uh, by mm-hmm. Al Zuckerman, who I, um, really a wonderful, wonderful man at Writer's House who gave me quite a mentoring and tutorial on this. And Al influenced me. He was of, of a shifting point of at three or four main characters and then mm. tell your story by shifting the point of view among these three or four so that you're really getting science uh, and into these characters of three or four people and then telling it um, from their point of view. And that's what I've tended to do. And I you know, and that's sort of a personal mm. thing comfortable for me other people of course write first person others have this have their main character on every page Mm. of the you know and those are all very good ways but this is something that felt comfortable to me and i enjoyed getting into the minds or trying to get into the minds of my three four three or four point of view characters and letting the story evolve that way so that's at least the way i i've been operating
0: no, I agree with you because I'm reading a book right now. I won't tell you the author. He, he's, I'm getting a different take on the main character because it's a different person running the book. And each page is another point of view from another character. It's a good thing I catch on fast because sometimes there's too many point of views. So, Jim, you do something that authors don't do very well, but you do it really well. How do you deal with flashbacks? And G- Earl remembering uh, the war and stuff like that. Because sometimes in the middle of a of a chapter, I go like, "What? Where did that come from?" And I well, always I, know that you how do you, how do you use flashbacks so that it keeps the person interested and not saying, "Oh my God, not another flashback."
3: Well, that's the that, that's the trick. If if they say that, you've failed. And I think it's you know I think it's just part of the overall uh, thing of uh, you know. Being mindful of pace, uh, how much is too much, uh, when to when to cut it short. Uh, you know, it's, it's to me, flashbacks are kind of a form of internal dialogue, and uh, it gives backdrop on you know a, a key aspect of uh, the character's essence. Uh, shows how he thinks. Shows what's you know influencing him. Um, in, in, rather than telling in a flat way. And uh plus well, so I found it to be, you know, an, another way to uh, introduce some action uh into the the story, uh if he's flashing back on a shootout or something that uh you know, something really active that happened uh you know, in his past. It's it's both informative of what makes this character and it can be kind of a pace thing. So you know, that's, you know, that's that's kind of my, my use of it. Um, you know, I, my guy is uh, haunted by the frequent visitations of an ex-partner, and, uh, mm. they'll, they, you know, they'll have dialogue back and forth. And uh, I, it's just to me it's another way to show who the character is and what his motivations are and maybe – pop some action in there that doesn't necessarily fit into the, you know, the main storyline. I want to go back to something, I think it's Alan saying, you know, multiple points of view. I mean, that's, that's how I write my stories. You know, it's, uh, um, you know, instead of just, you know, the point of view of the main character, it's it's multiple characters' point of view. And I think it gives, you know, a, you um, a, um a depth to the story that uh, uh, you don't get when you're just focusing in on, you know, the one character and what they see and and what their thoughts are. So I think it gives, you know, texture to the book. Um, uh, And those characters don't have to agree on, you know, the same thing they're looking at. In fact, that makes it, to me, that makes it more interesting. Well it is interesting there. You know
0: what I can't stand Is when they have The chapter headings This is Maria The next chapter is Tom The next chapter is That drives me crazy Because well, basically I mean, You I'm, mix I'm, it up
2: I
3: think readers yeah, Are I know. smart enough To follow um, What you do And there yeah. might a moment Of well, what the hell's going on here Well
2: Yeah
0: you know, exactly
3: That's okay You know you're, you're surprising The reader And if they like the story They'll keep reading To you know, figure out What the hell's going on Yeah If they don't you know, if that's what's if if that's what loses them, chances are you were losing them already. You know, just in yeah. general, and they were. And this gives them a, an excuse to bail out. I mean, you know, you don't you don't jerk the reader's chain, but I don't think you need to be afraid of uh, you know making it paint by numbers. Um, you... or, or I think you <laughs> should be afraid of making it paint by numbers. I think that's death.
0: You know, to a to a good story.
1: Hey, the other thing is Well,
0: I know. C- the other day, I said on the on the panel show that there was a book that took me two months to read. If it doesn't take me more than two hours, you're in trouble. And by the way, I just finally finished the book with you on the book I didn't like, and they loved what I wrote. I don't know why, but they did, in spite in spite of the fact that I wanted the main character to get killed off seven times. Yeah, I f- I found a way <laughs> to say People something. People like about honest it go-
5: feedback. I mean, you know, we because we yeah. all struggle with the the troll that just throws something out. You know, the book has been out for an hour, and somebody says they hated it. It's like, you didn't read it. Uh, But, you know, at the same time, I don't know an author who really doesn't like, um, you know, some honest feedback.
4: If if there's thought behind
3: it and, uh, you know, if it hangs together and shows that the person has actually read and thought about what you've written – Even if it's negative, I I don't mind that at all. I mean, I may kick a trash can across the room and then come back and say, uh, you know, he's got a point or I see where he's coming from. I disagree, Mm -hmm. but, you know, he's at least given it um, thought and consideration, and maybe I might learn something from it. But the, you know, well, the, the character was a argues. member of
0: government, and the member of government was kind of like, she was more concerned with having some fun with the guys in government than she was about the cases and the, and what was going on. And I just felt like she was, and I said it, I said she's a, you know, she's an interesting character, but I think she needed to focus on her job more. They didn't seem to be, well, you know, I didn't say anything about the writer's writing. I just said I think that as a member of parliament, she needed to focus on what she was supposed to be doing, not on gossip. That's just me. Yeah
3: the 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 the, I, I, the guys that drive me nuts are just the you know the cheap shot artist troll who just wants to show how clever they are at, at your expense that yeah. you know most of those guys you can see right through them uh, and if they're trashing yeah. I, I had a run of uh, somebody a couple of guys you know jumping together to down you get know, bad reviews in one of my books and. Uh, you know it was just, it's it's almost it's almost like they got together to decide you know what what to say among themselves because there was an awful yeah. lot of similarity.
5: Yeah, you bring so, you bring up something interesting too. You said that you had a character you didn't like and you know I'll never forget yeah. uh, a statement I heard from Stephen King about a character that he really wanted people to hate and uh, at the beginning of the book he he kicks a dog to death. And he said he was trying to think of an easy way to make people hate the character, and it worked, (laughs) so much so that people were still – I forget when he wrote this. was a couple years ago. He said people were still sending him hate mail about the dog dying in the book. He's like, it's fictional. (laughs) It's a work of fiction. Um, But, you know, it's a real challenge that you worry that you're going to have a character that you really don't want people to hate. But, you know, we all have different tastes. And something that you said about a character in passing or something the character does just exposes them to, uh, you know, uh, some vitriol that you was unexpected.
0: Yeah, well, sometimes, do you ever have an incident where the people like the villain and want them to come back? Instead of hating the villain, go like, I can't wait for that villain to kill somebody? Do you ever have a, a case where you want the person to come back again because they're so good at what they did that you created somebody that they want to, you know, come back again to a reoccurring villain?
1: No, but actually that's a good point, Fran, because, I mean, one of the things in writing is in some respects, it's Alan, I always find it's more fun creating villains in some way yeah. than the heroes because, ah, eh, you know, the heroes, you write them differently and so forth. There are nuances and whatever. But when you're writing villains, you have much more freedom and flexibility to create these kind of off the wall characters. And so, just from the writer's point of view of what's kind of fun to do, creating the villains, I find over the period of my novels, in some ways, has been a lot more fun than creating the characters. I don't know how your other panelists feel. I'd be interested on this.
2: Well, there's
3: there, there's a there's a freedom in creating a villain. You know, it's like uh, um, I mean, you don't have to worry about giving them a wife or kids or some type of life context. Uh, uh, you can make them as bad as you want them to be. And you're right. I mean, it's it's uh, it, it, it's great fun. And then you got to go back though, and okay, have I gone overboard with this guy? Um, um, I don't know. I've been pretty lucky. Most of most of the guys, most of the critics find you know my my villain's uh, pretty believable and uh, you know evil, nasty, but not uh, not, not uh, jump the shark kind of thing. So that, uh, yeah, I agree. It, it, and it's harder to write the uh, the good guy with flaws, yep. uh, the, the the guy who's uh, maybe massively human but has you know kind of a a code he returns to or she returns to when under pressure. Or the character he yeah. is in bad circumstances and does bad things, but is at heart, you know, uh, you know a decent person in bad circumstances. So this, I, oh. I find those guys are harder to write. Uh, they're, they're more challenging to write, it's not, you know, but uh, mm. uh, as opposed to the villain.
4: This, you know, this is Phil... I, I had a real interesting take on this. Uh, my first bestseller back in 1993 was uh, Gone But Not Forgotten. And I set my mm-hmm. my goal to uh, create the worst human being who'd ever mm-hmm. lived. And I've represented serial killers and heads of drug cartels and stuff. So what I did was I just used the the... the way uh sociopaths think uh to create this person the way they look at life which is uh fortunately way different than 99 percent of the people who exist and so i had the weirdest reaction um to this and i would go around and do the book tours and my picture was just because of a a, prob- a problem that popped up they didn't have a, a photograph of me on the on the book, so I'm pretty normal looking, and this guy is not normal at all. And when I would do a, a you know book signing, people would come up and they the book would freak them out. Gone but not forgotten. I I don't know even to this day if people come up and tell me how they read it and had nightmares, could tr- tried to read it by themselves uh-huh. alone. The house and couldn't do it, and so they would look at me and say you know, did you write that book? And I say, uh, yeah. Where did you get those ideas from? And I couldn't understand why people were being freaked out by the book. I wish I could say I, you know,
0: intentionally
4: wrote it to be scary, but I didn't. I just wanted to create this person. And then um, years later, a friend of mine, after uh, the year I retired from law, wanted me to co-counsel a murder case. And I said, well, you know, I've retired uh, to write full time, and he said, uh, "Oh, what's it like being r- around normal people every day?" And that's when a little <laughs> little light popped, in, and I said, "That's why that book is so scary, because my villain is like somebody that nobody ever comes in contact with. There, you know." So that that was really a lot of fun creating that character, uh, who is not. Got nice. He has no nice aspects
5: whatsoever.
4: Uh, he's just really, really a mean person.
5: You know, you talk about villains and liking and to. Me. Yeah, you, know, you talk about villains and liking to hate them, and do you ever want to see them succeed, or yeah. you ever want to see them bring back? You know, it's it's kind of funny because the I'm an old Bond fan. I mean, I, I remember when I was a kid. I was, you know, the the Bond movies were were really getting into play and they were really, you know, becoming incredibly popular. And you always love a Bond villain. I mean, you know, let's be honest. I mean, even the ones that, you know, die at the end, because most of them do, you really want them to succeed in some way. You kind of, you know, you like their characters. You like their, um, you know, their the, the, the boldness of them. Um, And it's really kind of funny, if you look at the early Bond movies, you didn't have a Bond villain, you had Spectre. So you kind of knew that no matter what happened, you were absolutely going to have a situation where the villains were going to be back again, Uh, even when they got their just desserts at the end. And James Bond was there serving dessert at every opportunity. But, uh, you know, you have to have have a certain... um, Visceral reaction to a villain, whether it's a, um, whether it's fear, as you were talking about in, in *Gone but Not Forgotten*, or whether mm-hmm. it's hey, we understand the circumstances they've gotten into. Um, and it, it's, what's amazing to me is how quickly people forget the the evil of the uh, of the villain. So I'll give you an example in uh, real life example. So in um, Brooklyn Center, uh, Minneapolis, they've just put a, an a ordinance in place that law enforcement officers are not allowed to make an arrest or search anyone if they make a traffic stop for a misdemeanor or a non-moving violation. And it sounds great. It's getting a bunch of publicity. And I sat there and said, well, then Ted Bundy and Timothy McVeigh would still be at large. And it's, you know, oh, those gosh. are the people that we fear. And, you know, these are, these are the modern-day boogeymen of, of our society uh, but we forget how evil those villains are. And, you know, kind of getting to your point about gone but not forgotten, we don't even want to think about the times we were swimming in the same pool with those folks. We'd just rather block it out of our minds.
0: I don't blame you. And, that, by the way, Phil, I remember that book, and it still scared me. And I felt so bad for Amanda <laughs> Joffe. No, seriously. I still have it. But before I forget, Wednesday, we're going to have a very inspirational show. Minister Sam Oliver will be here with Faith, Hope, and we're going to talk about hate crimes and why they're terrible. We're going to talk about whatever comes to his mind. I have no idea, but we're going to find out. On the 2nd, I'm not sure what's going to happen. Uh, Dick Belsky is supposed to be there with his new book as Dana Perry, and they still haven't sent it, so I don't know. On the 3rd, something very interesting that I've never done before. The author wrote The Day Before I Died, and he's going to talk about it, and I'm going to do it. On the 7th, this is an honor. Don Bentley has picked up Target, acquired the new Tom Clancy, and guess who gets the first interview on June 7th to 10th? That would be me. On the 8th, John Gilstrop with Grimson Phoenix, and on the 10th, uh, David Arnold with Electric Kingdom. And how would I ever be with the end of the month, the 29th, Tess Garrison and Gary Braver would choose me. And that's just some. And then I take the month of July off, and August is triple booked. So if anybody needs an interview, just email me and let me know. So, Phil, the next question is for you, what, or anyone. What is your biggest challenge in writing? And how do you keep writing, readers wanting to read more of your novels? Of course I do, every single time. And I already have you penciled in for the whole month of March to pick a date next year. I've got that done, too. So how do you, what's the greatest, biggest challenge that you have? In writing, and how do you uh, pick supporting characters?
4: Well, I mean, the biggest challenge for me, I'm, writing for me, is extremely easy. I have no problem yeah. with it. But what I what I do have a huge problem with is thinking up an idea that wow. is big enough to fill up a four hundred page book. And uh, <clears throat> you know, the, uh, an idea is. is, is you know, I, I'm always uh, terrified that when I finish a book and I'm going to do mm-hmm. another book that I won't be able to think up an idea. So, I, you know, ideas are really small. Books are 400 pages. And mm-hmm. trying to get something that's different from what I've done. Every, every I try to make every one of my books completely different. So I, I don't like repeating myself. And so yeah. I've got to figure out some idea that is interesting enough for the reader, um, and so I'm always scared about that. I what I do is I have an idea file, and <laughs> I, co- I, I even though I haven't practiced since '96, I still get a lot of legal, uh, you know, law magazines. Um, I I'm constantly reading newspapers and cutting out articles, and I throw them in this idea file, and then when I finish. When I finish a book, I, I take these thousands of pages of, of articles and stuff, and I read through it trying to get something that sparks, you know, my interest. So that definitely for me is, is the, the, hardest, the hardest part. Once I get the idea and I figure out the, the ending of the book and who the characters are going to be, uh, you know, I do an extensive outline that takes me months. So that's, then I've got the book written, but so like getting that initial idea is definitely mm. the scariest thing for me.
5: That's a, that that's a great that, phrase, ideas are small and books are huge. Yeah. That's a, boy, that's, that is that is a uh, – I'm going to have to chew on that one a while. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and
4: was there oh, a second seriously. part to the question? Fran, did you have a second part to that question?
0: Yeah, how do you get supporting characters to support your main character and create that that conflict? I mean, I I read thousands of books. I think between January, seriously, and May, I've read over two hundred. I don't know how, but I have. I I counted them on my on my just reviews. I read so many books. So how do you create? Um, the character, the so, so. supporting characters and the conflict that doesn't make me want to say, oh God, why am I reading this? I need root canal better than reading this book. And you guys do it really well. Seriously.
4: So so what I, what I do is I have this uh, system that I developed because when I wrote my first five novels I had a, a full-time law practice and I had two kids that my wife and I were raising and so I had to have a, mm-hmm. a I had to figure out a system that I could use to work. So what I do is once I can get that idea, so I say, oh, this is pretty good. I think I can work with this. Then mm. uh, the next thing I do is try to just – I don't write. I always advise write, new writers, when you get an idea, do not write. Think. And I sometimes well, – I literally spent 10 years. I got the idea for Executive Privilege, could the – President of the United States be a serial Killer and I couldn't Figure Mm. out the ending so I will not Write a word till I've got my ending I have to know who who the Bad guy is and how they're going to get caught And it literally took me 10 years To figure that out with that book But once I get that ending Once I say okay Now I've been thinking about this for Maybe months And I I get the idea say Okay this is a bad guy this is how he's going to get caught Then I do what I call a talking outline, although I'm not talking, I'm writing on on the computer, and I literally talk myself through the book. So, again, I'm not writing. I'm thinking Mm. six or seven hours a day about this plot, and I'm not writing anything. I'm just letting the stuff go in my head. And as I get ideas, I, I go chronologically from the beginning of the book through to the end. So my outlines are usually around 25 uh to 30 pages. I've had one that was 60. And so wow. what I'm doing is I'm, I'm literally writing the book in shorthand. And and then I'll say okay, I need this character here. I need this character here. I need this situation here. I have to put a red herring here. I've got to put a a clue here. And so it's again it's don't write think and so by the time I get my outline done the book's done so then it's really easy you just take each paragraph you make it into a chapter it's going to be crappy the first time you do it because all first all first drafts are bad so then you spend months and months re-editing for quality but that's the way I figure out who the characters are that are going to support the the you know, the main character who's going to be in there and as you're thinking about this stuff, you realize, oh yeah, this sounded pretty good, but it's not going to work unless they have a third person involved. Mm. You know, so so I always give the example. Here's a here's the easiest book to write: boy meets girl, boy and girl fall in love, boy and girl get married. How tough should it be to write that? But when you're creating three dimensional characters, because your mm. outlines a stick figure, what if the boy is a a liberal Democrat and the girl's a, a, a conservative Republican. They say, "Oh my God, would they be able to fall in love?" Well, maybe I need another character who can who says, "Well, let's get them both to join the Libertarians." So you know, it's that type of thing where you 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 create, start to flesh out your plot. You realize what you thought was going to work isn't, and then you say, "I've got to have another character come on in." and 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 that will solve the problem.:
0: That's interesting, but how, what happens when you have too many characters? I mean, you know, like I said, I have so many books that I read, and um, sometimes they're like the the, the the front of the book has the character list characters listed. One of the books I just read had two hundred characters listed, and the characters characters in the book, and then go like, "Oh my God, I need my graphic organizer for when I was teaching reading. It's hard. When is it that you have too many characters in the book? Well, before I ask what's next? Again, that
4: that's where your editing comes in. That's where yeah. you have to be. Um, one great thing about being a lawyer is you're trained to be very objective and unemotional mm. about your work. So if if you're if I'm writing, and I have ten thousand characters, at some yeah. point, hopefully, my brain will say, "Phil, th- this is is not going to be very good because." Uh, people are just going to be overwhelmed. I'm going to have to do some editing here, and then you—you know—I mean, you should spot the a problem like that while you're doing your quality work. So, well, I Lance, have to tell you, you have I, different
0: I, organizations in your book, and it's so interesting. You have a lot of characters, but you manage to support it, so I don't—I I can follow. How do you do that?
4: Who, who are you talking to?
0: No, the, the, are you are you use organizations different, you know, crime different, you know, uh, organizations that Jack, you know, that he works with. How do you do that? Because it's really interesting. I mean, you have a lot of characters in the book, and yet I can follow it. At yes, least I think I can. Is this Lansdale?
5: Ah, uh, this is Lance. I, 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 I we weren't sure. I think we weren't sure who you were asking the questions to.
0: Now, I'm asking it of you because you have different law enforcement agencies in your book that oh, you I got work you. with. Yeah.
5: Um you know and and it, it's, it's a challenge. Well, it's a challenge for me because it's always easy for me to keep them straight. And you know, when I worked in public relations yeah. in a police department, somebody would call up and say, Well, I got stopped by your officer and they were rude. It's okay, well, what agency uh, were yeah. they with? And they'd get it wrong and finally we would have to say, What color pants and what color shirt was the person's uniform? Mm-hmm. <laughs> the al- the people had no clue who they who were stopped, um, so it's it's a challenge even when you start getting into the alphabet soup of the federal agencies mm-hmm. to make sure that you're um, you're keeping things straight. And I have to tell you, your description of of how you write with. Planning out the ending and mm. uh, and outlining and everything is absolutely fascinating and sounds torturous to me. <laughs> I could never write like that. <laughs> I, you know, I I literally sit down. I'll have an idea. I'll have a a way to bring a um, bring a a conflict to the writing, and then I start writing. And you know, there's I know writers who outline everything, as you said. I know ra- outler- writers who Write the last line of the story first and work backwards. I just pretty much start with that idea and see where it leads. And you know, um, I've been fortunate anal. with it, but it keeps me interested. <laughs> that's that's what keeps the edge for me to sit down and grab the computer and say, "I want to write some more today." I'm
4: very that's anal. Yeah, you know, I have. I, I probably my daughter thinks I'm a high functioning autistic, and so I've got to have everything in place. I think mean, so. The you know the law, the lawyer training for trials where you have to get every single, uh, I dotted or you're like, if you're doing a death case, if you don't check every single space, the guy could get eaten. So, uh, that's just, that's just me. And, if, but every, one of the great things I always tell people, the great thing about writing is there's no correct way to do it. Every, any, System that gets you from the first page to the end is a phenomenal, brilliant system. So I always warn people when I'm talking about how I write. Just because I write this way doesn't mean that you have to. It's just basically a suggestion. So if, if that will give you indigestion, don't don't follow my system.
0: Oh no no, yeah. no!
3: You're talking about the classic divide between you know, cancers and plotters. I mean the 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 there. Are, And I'm definitely in the former category. I, I, you know, have a few notes on characters, and I have a kind of a general notion of the main plot points, but I can throw those out the window at any time. And I much prefer writing and being just as surprised as as, uh, my characters are about what comes down the pike. But other guys, you know, they they want the details. They want the, uh, um, uh, you know, they want to have a, you know, very formal outline. Uh, who was it? Um, um, Belsky was telling me about uh, a famous author who, you know, basically has an outline that's, uh, you know, several hundred pages. In our, or uh, you know, so it's almost like he's writing the book before he writes the book. Uh, that seems to be a bit obsessive to me. I might as well just dive in and write the book.
4: Uh, not, let I'm me let me right. let me just. Let me just comment on that, because I've thought about this a lot. I think we're really dealing with semantics. Let's say that instead of doing my big outline, I do what you do. I get, I just get the idea, and I just start writing the book. Well, isn't what I end up with the first draft uh, a 400-page outline? Because you're going to have to go back in, and you're going to have to revise it anyway. Yeah. Uh, so you really, we're we're talking about the same thing, except that I do my, my outline before I get to 400 pages. You're, you're doing your 400 pages, and then you're basically reorganizing spotting flaws and doing all this stuff. So it's, it's really the same system, as you say. I've, I've thought about this a lot. It's really the same system, except you're just going at it from a different endpoint. You know, You're starting here and I'm starting there.
3: Well, that's what that's you know, they do. sweep aside the uh, sweep aside the definitions, outline, uh, mm. uh, character notes, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I mean, I you know I I've I developed what process I've got. You know, long years in journalism, and where I used mm. to write detailed notes and put down quotes I wanted to use and everything like that, and that gradually got narrower and narrower and less and less and where I would just kind of have a circled main point and an arrow and another circle main point and then maybe you know so and so quote here you know and it looked like a a stick and ball uh, schedule that uh, my good friends in nuclear power use for uh, you know scheduling work Mm. activities and yeah, you know, I used to call it island hopping. You know, go from one point to the next to the next, and um, then you know you're always you're always taking a detour. But I, I I think there's I, I, I hear where you're going, and I think yeah, that's uh, it's just the different ways you categorize something that uh, you know we all have to do at one point or another.
1: On on well, what the is other next for
0: every Alan, what do you think?
1: Well, I'll tell you. On the, when I'm intrigued by this discussion, because I'm like, <laughs> <Me too. laughs> you know, I, not only with a detailed outline of 20 or 30 pages, but I also do bios of my main point of view characters, written bios, so that I will get to know them before I start writing. But I'm sort of mm. intrigued by something I think Phil just sort of mentioned in passing, him being a lawyer. Well, I'm a lawyer, too, by training, and I've spent a lot of time as a lawyer. And I wonder if, if we lawyers, and you could respond, Phil, if we lawyers aren't prone to go the detailed outline route because that's mm. kind of our training and where we are subconsciously. And so I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. And it's just I'm wondering if my if my legal training is influencing me as well, having listened to All your right.
0: I, I think well, it's definitely doing a it's job.
4: A, no, mm-hmm. I think it's it, you de- it definitely I know it it, it influences mm. me because um I do my books like I do a case. Right? And you know, if you're doing a month long trial or a two month long trial, you're dealing mm. with thousands of pages of information and you've got to master every single thing. So it means you've got to really, you know, take a lot of notes and do, you know, make sure you've got everything. Like I said, when you do a death penalty case, if you screw up with one tiny thing, they eat your client. They you, he gets killed. So you can't afford to make any mistakes. And so when I'm writing the books, I think I definitely take that mindset, and I trans, I you know, translate it. I want to get everything proper order so I know exactly where I'm going, Uh, and that's, again, I think the legal training definitely makes you do that. Well, Well, on September 23rd, I'm
0: going to to try something brand new um, because we have about five more minutes, not even. Um, I'm going to be talking about the hardest part of a novel. I think we try to talk about that on Monday, um, the middle of the book. How do you take that we're going to do one, Vincent Dandry. Charles Salzberg and I think John Lansing, and if anybody else wants to volunteer for this wildness, we're going to talk about how do you take the how do you write the middle of your book because so that it doesn't drag, and people don't want to put the book down before they get to the end. You know people write great beginnings, some of them some of them write great endings, but in the middle of the book, I go, "Do I have to finish this? It's really sad. So that's what we're going to be talking about on September 23rd with Vincent Dandry, Charles Salzberg, and John Lansing just answered and said he might be able to do that, too. Because that's the hardest part for me to read, is what happens in the middle? What happens when that character is making me fall asleep? So before we end, what is next for everybody, and when am I getting it? Me, <laughs> I have. Uh, you should see the pile. You should see the pile inside that I just got. The the, the latest book that I'm reading is Target Acquired, but I'm also reading one by a former coroner, deputy coroner, and it's called I've Seen Dead Bodies. And it's really good. Too. Let me tell you, she's descriptive, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Am I really reading this?" Yeah. So, what's next for everybody, and when am I getting it? So I this, put you in my schedule. Well, I'll be—I'll
3: <laughs> uh, be trying to bash through chapter eleven of my next Ed Earl book. Uh, it's you know, tiling titling it the dead, uh, the dead certain doubt, an Ed Earl Birch novel, and uh, it's uh, going to have Ed Earl as a kind of a an aging. Uh, private Eye, and, and see uh, see how he deals with uh, uh, the uh, increasing uh, handicaps of middle age, and uh, he's again out in West Texas, the place where he always winds up almost getting killed, and uh, um, has some really nasty characters that he's going to be uh, uh, doing some business with. So I hope to have that out by late November, early December. And, uh, Just Let me you know when I
1: can keep you in my
0: schedule. What about you, Alan? Right. When, when is the next one coming out?
1: When I don't have a date. It's probably going to be the end of the year, but, but Kelly Cameron is struggling with Chinese spies. There are far more oh, nice. Chinese spies. Chinese spying in the U.S. is far more extensive than Russian spying ever was, and that's going to be the background for the, for the new novel that I'm about two-thirds of the way through.
0: That's good. And Phil, you're coming out with one in next March?
1: Next March it's called uh, the
4: Darkest Place and oh, nice. uh it it, it involved the um a case involving the shaken baby syndrome which is very controversial.
2: Mm-hmm. And uh
4: Robin Lock it's another Robin Lockwood and uh she has a major um Something major happened in her private life, uh, which I'm not going to tell you what it is because it's sort of the 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 thing that makes the whole book go. But I was fascinated by the shaking baby syndrome when I went to a um, a two day seminar on junk science mm. uh, that the Oregon Criminal Defense Lawyers Association uh, held. So uh, uh, it's it's a very very interesting area.
0: That sounds good. Lance, when are you getting when is and your next book coming out? And well am I, going I will to
5: get? get you an advanced copy. Now it's going to be put out as a serial, but uh I'm going to do you the favor good. of not having you claw all of your fingers down to the bone waiting for the next one to <laughs> come out. Ready. So as an exclusive <laughs> you're going to get all of them at one time. Um and oh, I will goody. be sending that out to you uh shortly. So that is uh you know, I, I think it will be a nail-biter, whether you get it one or, or all at a time. But, uh, you know, it, it, in kind of getting back to our previous thing, the bottom line is the writing is my escape. That's why I kind of get to free flow. So the lawyer stuff gets into the continuity and making sure that I spell things properly. Uh, but it's my escape. So these are, these are really kind of the, the dreams and thoughts and the opportunity to step outside the box where the law seems to be uh, very formal for me.
0: That's good, and I hope everybody sends me books with large print. I, I just uh-huh. received something that the font the font is so small that thank God the people at FedEx love me because they'll so reprint it if I want to print it. Even that or I don't read it, forget it. So I where will be can happy we find out that. about everybody? Yeah, I mean, no, I got a book about a couple of months ago, when I refused to read it. The font was one, and the book was two inches by three inches. I mean, really? Then when I said, "Do you mind if I print it out?" They, just, I said, "Never mind. I'm just not reading it." So where can everybody learn more about you and your work, everybody, besides Amazon?
2: Well, oh, you, can, uh, you
3: can check out mine on, uh, <laughs> at uh, uh, www.edarellbirchbooks.com. And uh, get a look at the, all three that are out there. And uh, a summary of the fourth book, uh, a little pre- prequel book. And... Uh, also, look me up on Facebook. Jim, that's the
0: author. You write uh, the funniest no. things, though. I love them. I read everything you write. It's hilarious.
1: For me, it's it's allant.com, A-L-L-A-N-T-O-P-O-L.com. I've uh, descriptions of all my
5: books. and <laughs> Well, for me, they would go to LanceLarussoBooks.com. It's L-A-N-C-E-L-O-R-U-S-S-O Books.com. Or they can go to BlueLineLawyer.com, and it will send them to the same place. And several of the books, the profits, go to law enforcement charities. And Phil,
0: what can we learn about you? uh,
4: www.philmarglin.com. And one of the cool things I have on my uh, on the, the the page is that there's a contact fill. So if you have a question and you you type it in, it goes right to my email, and and then I I respond immediately when, once I see something from the website, which isn't spam. I get a
0: lot of spam on it also, but if it's like mm-hmm. a
4: real human. Uh, I try to answer right away.
0: Well, I want to thank everybody. You just made my day so much better, seriously. And now I will deal with my broken air conditioner where the compressor broke. And <laughs> 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 yeah, dude, yeah, this morning, oh, my God. But I want to thank This has been really interesting. And if anybody wants to join the discussion on September 23rd, we're going to talk about beginning... An end, And But mostly about the middle of the book, because that's the part of the book sometimes, like I said, I want to put it down. My chair is loaded with, with books to read, and some of them just went to the end of the table behind me because I'm not going to do them. So everybody, it's beautiful outside. Everybody have a great day. Thank you so much, and bye.
2: Thank you, Fran.